0: We're reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 today. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, And with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you deal with so many topics, subjects, issues, parts of real life in the Word of God that give us comfort, give us direction, give us encouragement, give us hope. Thank you for these words. Use them today to speak to us. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Paul begins by talking about not wanting the believers in Thessalonica to be uninformed about those who had fallen asleep so that they wouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. One possible explanation for these verses, verses 13 and all the way through to 18, is that the Christians of that day... Possibly it started speculating about the return of Christ. And somehow within that conversation, wherever it was taking place, maybe only in Thessalonica amongst Thessalonian believers, but it's probable that it was a larger conversation than that. But however it was taking place, somehow someone, and then it spread, concluded that Christ would return only for believers who were alive at the time of his return. In other words, any believer who died before Christ's return would not be taken up to meet Christ in the air. At least we can conclude that much. If it meant more than that, we don't really know. There is no clear statement as to what the believers thought was going to happen to those who died before Christ's return. That's not talked about anywhere in the scriptures. But apparently whatever they believed, it was causing them to grieve as if deceased believers were going to lose out on being with Christ forever in God's eternal kingdom. Christ was only coming for those who were alive at the time of his return. That was probably the thought, and that's what Paul is dealing with in this portion. But before we look at Paul's words about grieving as if there is no hope of a resurrection, I want to point out two other truths found here in verse 13. First, Paul uses the word sleep when referring to believers who have died. And this is not unique to Paul. For example, I'm going to give you a few examples from scripture. In Job chapter 14 verse 12, death is spoken of as sleep. When asked to raise a girl from the dead, Jesus refers to her as being asleep, Matthew 9:24. When told that his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus said, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep." Now we know that Lazarus was dead because the the uh, statement was put forward when Jesus said, uh, open the tomb, uh, it was, well, but he's going to smell pretty bad. So he wasn't just sleeping. Sleep was a reference to the fact that Lazarus had died. John eleven eleven. In describing Stephen's death by stoning, Luke writes these words, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell Asleep, Acts 7, 16. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, verse 18, and verse 51, Paul refers to believers who die before the return of Christ as having fallen asleep. Now, if we go back to this portion of scripture, here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks about the believers who are potentially going to die before Christ returns as being asleep. But notice, he speaks of Christ as being dead. That's a unique difference. Why? I don't really know. One possible thought is that Christ died for our sins. He ascended into hell. He wasn't just asleep. We aren't dying for our sins because Christ took that place for us. We are in our sleep. Just an interesting side note is that the English word cemetery is a derivative from a Greek word which means a place to sleep. All right, this picture of death is in itself a comfort. The believer goes to sleep. And it's a comfort because for most of us, most of the time, sleep is something we look forward to, and especially after a hard day's work. When you're tired, you look forward to going to sleep. And for most of us, sleep is peaceful, and something from which we awaken refreshed and energized. So this word, sleep, in place of dead or death, is a comforting word, and this is what the scripture uses from the Old Testament into the New. And all of that to say, we as believers ought not to fear death. We ought not to treat it as something to be avoided at all cost. And I'm not suggesting we should just take our lives. But we ought not to fear dying. We ought not to see it as the worst outcome that we could endure. It is like going to sleep. It's a blessing, just from this perspective alone. Not to mention, it's to be in the presence of the Lord. The second thing that I want to point out from these uh, verses is that Paul speaks of Christian grief as being significantly different from the unbeliever's grief. For the Christian, there is the confident expectation of a heavenly life hereafter with God And with those who love God. It's a community gathering. Whereas for the unbeliever there is only death, loss, and suffering. No matter how good life is for the believer on this earth. Death is the portal. It's the door to an indescribably better life in a better place. For the unbeliever, just the opposite is true. No matter how bad life has been on this earth, for the unbeliever, death is a portal to something unimaginably worse. It isn't better. No matter how many loved ones the believer leaves behind, he's going to a place where love reigns supreme. He's going to a place where relationships, all relationships, every relationship is meaningful and satisfying. He's going to to a place where the community is his family. He's going to a place where God is his father. And where any loved ones from his earthly family who are believers will eventually join him. It isn't this way for the unbeliever, for he has no hope of being raised to meet Christ at his return or to be with him forever. The unbeliever's encounter with Christ after his death will be at the judgment seat of God. And the outcome of that experience will be condemnation and eternal damnation though many unbelievers may not know what awaits them, they have no rational reason, no rational basis for believing that there is any form of existence after death that is better than what they have now experienced in this world. And I conclude that that is cause enough to grieve as if you have no hope. Alright, does this mean that the Christian ought not grieve at the death of a loved one? Are we to be cheerful and excited and happy rather than sad or broken hearted? That doesn't appear to be Paul's point here. So let's not take this statement as meaning believers ought not to grieve. Paul's point is that we ought not to grieve as if there is no hope of a resurrection. Or in other words, we ought not to grieve inconsolably. We ought not to grieve as if God's love, presence, and continued care is insufficient to comfort us in the face of our loss. We ought not to grieve as if God himself is not enough to fill the void left by the one who has died, has passed away. And we ought not to grieve as if Happiness has been snatched away or joy is lost or our reason to feel secure has been taken or as if God will not bring good out of our loss. Just as he has brought good out of all other situations. When you love someone and their presence is taken from you, it is natural to feel the loss. I'm unaware of having lost anyone where I feel that real loss. But I do suspect that if Barbie passes before me, I will feel that loss. That, for me, would be a significant loss. So, this experience is natural, it's normal when you truly love someone, when you have this very meaningful relationship and that person is taken from you, it is a loss. As Christians, though, though we feel the loss and though we grieve the loss, Paul is exhorting us not to grieve as those who Have no hope of a resurrection. No experience of the presence of God. No experience with the comfort and grace of God in your life. Feel the loss. Grieve the loss. But find continued joy and comfort in God. Moving on to verse 14, we find that Paul presents his first of two reasons why... Christians ought not grieve for the dead as if there is no hope of a resurrection for them. Verse 14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and of course, we do believe that because that's what we believe when we repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. We believe he died and rose again. So, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, We ought to believe that God will bring with Christ, that is, that God will resurrect those who have fallen asleep in Jesus when Christ returns. Is everybody going to be uh, resurrected at the return of Christ? No, Paul is only saying the believers are. Just the believers he's talking about. So Paul's first reason for not grieving as if there is no hope is that just as Jesus died and God raised him from the dead, so God will resurrect every Christian who dies before Christ's return. And the point here is that the Christian's resurrection at Christ's return is directly tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's interesting to note that our Freedom from the enslaving power of sin and our ability to live a godly life is also directly tied to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that Those are two things that are directly tied to that. Therefore, because God did the one, raise Jesus from the dead, he will do the other, raise us from the dead. Paul goes into much greater t- detail about this in 1 Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses twelve through twenty three. And this is one of the reasons that I point you to other portions of Scripture in teaching to you in teaching you. Uh, the Word of God is covers many things and it talks about the same things in different places. And I want to remind you that we ought not just take our view of what God is saying from one scripture. We ought to see what the larger Uh, statement is as we look at other scriptures related to the same topic. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 23. I'm going to read most of these verses to you. I'm going to skip a couple. And here's Paul's argument. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, if this is what we're claiming, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, we see that not just the Thessalonians, but the Corinthians were also... Caught up in this thing. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. In other words, it's useless. If Christ hasn't been raised. Just dying for our sin is not enough. He had to be raised from the dead to complete the process. Skipping to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Do you see the tie-in between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of those who die before Christ returns? Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have died before Christ's return, they're just gone. They're lost. That's it. It's over. Skipping to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Those who have died before his return. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. That is the resurrection of believers who have died before Christ's return. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ. The first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Moving on to verse fifteen in First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul presents his second reason why we ought not grieve for believers who pass away as if there is no hope, no hope of a resurrection. Verse fifteen: For this we say to you. Remember, his first reason was the death and resurrection of Christ validates, verifies, proves that. Unbelievers will be raised, I mean, believers will be raised if they die before Christ's return. So, Paul's second reason is stated here in verse 15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede, we will not arrive before those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we have no advantage. Those of us who are alive, when Christ returns, have no advantage over those who have passed away before his return. So Paul's second reason for not grieving comes about because God revealed it to him. He says, here's my second reason. God told me this. This is what God said. Yes, I have this to verify it, the death and resurrection of Christ. If God did that, he's going to do this. But also God told me. Or if not told Paul, he told somebody nearby that told Paul or passed this information on to Paul. Somebody in the church had heard from God and it probably was Paul that this is the way it was going to happen at the return of Christ. Now you may be wondering when God revealed this information to Paul or to the apostles or to some individual and the reality is we don't know. We have no clue when God did this. But we do know that this would not be the first or only time god did such a thing since the birth of christ in the new testament god speaks of course he spoke in the old testament too did he not jesus said that he spoke the words of god that god told him to speak john 7:15 john 8:26 john 14:10 So this would be one example of God speaking to a human being, God speaking to Christ and saying, here's the truth, tell it this way. In possibly the same or a similar manner, Paul recounts hearing directly from God in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. And here's what Paul writes, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. God told him. The reality is, God has spoken and still speaks in a variety of ways. But never at our whim or according to our will. One of my experiences in church life was that for a while there was the common statement God told me. And I have no problem with God telling any of us something. But I do have a problem with God told me and then what is claimed God told me does not fit within the boundaries of who God is or what he says doesn't stay within the boundaries of what is revealed about God. Now, it's not that God can't go out of those boundaries. He can go anywhere he wants. But we have no way to measure what God has said other than those boundaries. One of the things that uh, has helped keep much of the church on track for many, many years, in fact, up till the time of Luther, for 1,500 years, the church stayed on track because the rule was you cannot bring a new teaching into the church unless you can verify that it was taught by a disciple or a disciple of a disciple. If you couldn't trace that new teaching back to that, it's not allowed in the church. My point is, is that there was no other way to manage this claim God said. And I bring this up because we should be cautious of the God told me. Doesn't mean God doesn't speak. He speaks. But it does mean we can assume God has spoken or we can wish God has spoken or we can claim God has spoken and he hasn't. And we need some way to measure that. Some way to decide it was actually God who spoke to us. So I do believe that God speaks. We had two testimonies tonight in the worship time of God somehow communicating to two different people two different things about their own life and it was helpful. It worked. It brought about a good that God was in. Well, God spoke to Paul or to someone near Paul about this resurrection issue. In verse 16, Paul begins to state what God revealed about Christ's return in in relation to the Christians who die before his return. Here's what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. And the idea here is, uh, the idea of descending with a shout would be like a king or a general or a leader of an army yelling charge uh as he leads the troops into battle. I'm not recommending watching movies, I'm not recommending not watching movies necessarily, but in the um, uh the three towers are part of uh Lord of, Lord, Lord of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings, there's several battle scenes where the leader yells, you know, charge, and off the whole troops go. Well that's this picture. Here comes Christ and As he descends, there is this shout of, as it were, charge. But also, he descends from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Well, this possibly refers to a second shout of charge by the leader of the angels. And as we read through the scriptures, it could be that that's Michael. Michael is presented as certainly one of the important angels the archangel, but that is speculation, I admit that. But not only with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, but with the trumpet of God. And the sound of a trumpet in relation to God appearing and gathering his people goes all the way back to the story of Israel uh, around the mountain and God appearing on that mountain. We read about that in Exodus 19. I just want to read verses 16 and 17. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain. This is where Moses went up to the mountain and got the Ten Commandments. And all of Israel is around the base of the mountain. All right, so the thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. So that all the people who were in the camp, trembled. And Moses, responding to the trumpet sound, brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31, Jesus links a trumpet sound to the return of Christ. So Paul didn't just get this from the revelation of God to him. Jesus also taught this very fact. And here's what we read, but immediately Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together God's elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So, just pointing out again that this sound of the trumpet is customarily part of God's gathering his people, and certainly at the return of Christ. God will be gathering his people. And if you listen to the Messiah, like I have, you certainly know this portion of scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We, that is we Christians, will not all sleep. We will not all die. We won't all be dead when Christ returns. Some of us will still be alive. But, he says, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. The next phrase in that statement in verse 16 is the dead in Christ will rise first. The idea here is that when Christ returns, the first thing to happen is that the believers who have died before Christ's return will be resurrected. How all this happens exactly, we don't know, but just imagine, you know, picture this. This may not even be the accurate picture, but it's the best I can do. Picture this, the graves are opening or the bodies just rise out of the ground. I don't know. But is isn't just people from today. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the dead in Christ. All those who belong to God, who are true children of God, they will be raised out of the earth, maybe out of the seas, out of the lakes, wherever their bodies are at rest. They will be raised. And as they rise up to meet Christ in the air, those of us who are alive, if any of us, We will meet them in the air and join them with Christ. And Paul confirms this, verse 17. Then we, Paul writes, that's all Christians everywhere, who are alive and remain when Christ returns, will be caught up together with the dead who have been resurrected in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And then he ends with these words, comfort one another with these words. All right, so there's one truth and one exhortation in these two verses, verses 17 and 18, that I want us to consider. And the truth is this, that once all believers from the beginning of creation to the day of Christ's return are gathered together with Christ, we will be with him forever. That's what Paul tells us. Jesus promised this in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, where he said to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the challenges that I think we have as modern-day Christians living in this country is that life here in the U.S. has been good. We've got our problems and troubles, and things seem to be getting worse. But worse in comparison to what? What? We've known freedoms that most of the world have never known. We've had wealth that most of the world can only imagine. We've amassed possessions, enjoyed treasures, and had more pleasures than anybody in the world can imagine. And all within driving distance. We have more food than we ought to eat. We have easy access to physical and mental health care. We have support systems that few in the world enjoy. The government, regardless of what you think of the government today, the government in this country is generally on our side. Barb and I have traveled to other countries where the government is not on your side. It's not on the people's side, and they treat you just that way. We have life pretty good. And though this list could go on and on, I want to affirm that there is nothing in this life, or in this world, or in this country, that is better or even close To being what Christ, being with Christ forever is equal to. Nothing. Nothing is equal to that. Not even close. And so to want this life over being with Christ forever is like wanting fool's gold over real gold. I have met too many believers who want to go to heaven when they die. They just don't want to die anytime soon because life is so good here. And that is the wrong way to think, in my opinion. Again, I'm not suggesting we should want to die today or tomorrow. I'm not suggesting we should take our life. This is not what this is about. This is about the way we think. This is about our attitude. It's about what we value. And when we value the life that we have here in this nation more than we value being with God. Let me just live a little longer, God. Enjoy this a little more. That is not the attitude to have. What does that say about our view of God and our value of God and the value of the eternal kingdom? My exhortation to all of us is that we would not, not love this world. That we would not love the things that are in this world, but rather that we would love God and that we would love the things of God and that we would love to enjoy the presence of God in a face-to-face kind of way. We may never touch that in this world. Some of us may, many of us may not, but we should value that and treasure that and look forward to that in the next life in the eternal kingdom. And finally, the exhortation in verse 13 is very straightforward. Comfort one another with these words. We may not need to comfort one another about the plight of believers who die before Christ's return because we don't argue about that. We don't debate that. It's not an issue among us. We already believe what Paul has exhorted us to believe. In fact, we believe that when you die, you immediately go to be with God in heaven. That's the current popular teaching. That's what we hold to. And I'm not speaking against that, please. So, we probably don't need to comfort one another about the plight of those who have died already as if, at Christ's return, they're not going to get the same benefits we get. But there are other things that we can sensitively and compassionately comfort one another about when it comes to the passing of loved ones and the return of Christ. And I want to encourage us to be that kind of sensitive, caring people. You may not feel that yourself. You may have never been in a situation where you really feel the loss of a loved one, but at least empathize with somebody who does feel that loss. And keep in keep in mind that telling someone not to grieve—that's not really very comforting. Put your arm around them, sit with them. You know, one of the lessons of Job that is often overlooked, in my opinion. As his friends may not have told him the best things, but you know, they went and sat with him, with their mouths shut for a number of days just to be with him, to go through that time with him. Imagine that. That's comfort. I want to conclude by pointing out two topics that do not appear in these verses And I feel it's important to point this out because oftentimes these two topics are brought up as if they relate to these verses. And I'm not saying that you can't use these verses to support your your thoughts about the end times. There's a variety of thoughts about the end times. You're welcome to use whatever verses you want. But I just want to point out these two topics and the fact that they do not appear in these verses first. First. Paul does not tell us anything about what happens to unbelievers who have died prior to Christ's return. Or what happens to those unbelievers who are alive at Christ's return. He's only talking about believers in this portion of scripture. You can speculate, but try to keep in mind that that's speculation. Second, the word rapture is not found in these verses. In other words, in these verses, Paul seems to be presenting Christ's return in the air as the second coming of Christ, not what is commonly taught as the rapture. That can be inferred, I agree, but it's not the context. According to the teachings on the rapture, if you're familiar with those teachings, Christ partially returns to take believers out of the world before or in the middle of the tribulation, either before the tribulation starts, a seven-year period, or in the middle at the three-and-a-half-year mark. And then, according to the teaching on the rapture, after the end of the tribulation, the second or full return of Christ takes place. That's not spoken about in this portion of Scripture, Christ comes, the dead in Christ rise first, the believers who are alive join them in the air to be with Christ forever. And I want to submit to you that the reason these other topics aren't in there is because Paul was not talking about anything other than let's not grieve as those who have no hope. That's what this portion deals with. And so I want to encourage you, as you read this portion of Scripture yourself, as you consider its meaning for yourself, don't lose sight of the purpose that Paul had in mind when he wrote it.